Good morning. We have reached a uh, milestone this morning. We are going to conclude our time in Paul's letter to the Colossians. We uh, started this because I preach once a month. It takes a, a long time to work through even a short letter like this. But we had started this letter from Paul to the, the Christians at Colossae two years and two months ago. Taking our time, taking our time once a month. But it was, uh, I think the first sermon was September 24th, 2016. So it's crazy how much time flies. But we are in the Word. That's what we're all about at Summit Bible. And uh, Jeremy, who, Pastor Jeremy, who's out uh, this week, he'll be back next. Um, he's taking us through Titus. And so we will be concluding our time in Colossians and embarking on a new adventure together in a month. I think I've told like two people, y'all can keep it under wraps, we'll keep it a, as a surprise what we're going to do next when I'm up here. Anyway, but if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 4. And we've been in this, this long closing to to Paul's letter, so instead of putting it all into one sermon and kind of blasting through it, we've been taking our time working our way through these verses since it runs from verse 7 all the way through 18 in chapter 4. And so we're in the third part of this closing. Our text is going to be 15, verses 15 through 18. And so what we saw at the end of chapter 4 so far, we saw in verses 7 through 9, Paul's commendation of his messengers, Tychicus and Onesimus. And we saw in verses 10 through 14, which we looked at last week, the personal greetings from the rest of Paul's team that was ministering alongside him in Rome. And now, in verses 15 through 18, we're going to take a look at the final instructions Paul gave to the Colossians before he ended his letter to them. And as we work our way through these instructions, we'll, we will consider three features that are vitally important to the health of a local church. So we're going to see that as we, we go through these instructions that he gives. We'll see three features that are essential to the health of a local church. So starting in verse 15, Paul writes this, "'Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea.'" and to Nympha, and the church in her house. Now, Paul had mentioned Laodicea twice before in this letter, once back in chapter 2, and once again just a couple verses before this one, back in verse 13, where he also mentioned Hierapolis. In both of these cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, along with Colossae, well, they were all close together. They were really close together. There we go, and I have a map with my handy laser pointer here. There we go, I remembered it this time. Uh, this is brought to you by Google Maps, satellite. Um, as you can see, note by the way, uh, you see this right here? So in your, our English translations, they put a C here to translate the Greek name. If you remember my first sermon on introduction to Colossians, we read through the whole letter, and I went ahead and took the liberty to pronounce it Laodicea. You know, I'm probably, what in the world is he doing? Well, you know what? You can kind of do whatever you want with languages that are, you know, Koine Greek isn't used anymore. But Laodicea, Laodicea, choose your pick. But anyway, you can see, this hopefully helps you see how close these three cities, this is the tri-city area. This is in the Roman province of Asia. Obviously, these are modern locations. This is Turkey now, the country of Turkey. Um, and these are approximate locations for the ancient cities. But we have Colossae, and um, pretty much about, I think it was about nine miles, and then about 11 miles from Laodicea to Hierapolis. So obviously, it, you know, they're not a perfect triangle, equilateral triangle, but you would go from Colossae to Laodicea. And that would probably take a few hours walking distance, says Google. Um, people might have been a little more hardy then, back then, so maybe it took them less time to walk with this guy right here. But you can see how close these cities were in proximity. So just keep that in mind. When, when you hear, the, you know, these, not, all, not all the churches that Paul's writing to were uh, hundreds of miles apart. I mean, he's writing to churches in Asia and to Colossae, and so mentioning these two other cities, they're right up the road. They're right up the road. So you can see they're all close together, and, and you know, Colossae at one time 
was a great city. It actually was a great city, a prosperous, uh, a busy city, a populated city. However, that was, that was in uh, ancient times, centuries before Paul had written this letter. At the time he wrote this letter, Colossae was basically just a small town. Just a small town. Any of you from a small town? My wife is from a small town in central Wisconsin until I took her away from there and married her. So Colossae was just a small town by the time Paul's writing to the Christians there. Laodicea and Hierapolis, on the other hand, they were actually, at this time, prominent and prosperous cities. So basically, people wouldn't be going to Colossae for anything. They'd be going to these other places. That's where all the action was. A lot of commerce. Um, Hierapolis was considered more of a resort city. Uh, so they're prominent and prosperous cities, and you can go ahead and take that down now, so hopefully that's in your mind when you're thinking of these locations. Now, in verses 12 through 13, Paul said that Epaphras, the man who, who actually brought the gospel to Colossae, brought the gospel to this region, um, Epaphras, uh, who had originally brought the gospel to Colossae, and not only that, we can assume he brought it to Laodicea and Hierapolis as well, uh, he was fervently praying, Paul said. He was fervently praying and working hard on behalf of the Christians who lived there. Epaphras is with him in Rome at this time, and Paul wrote, hey, Epaphras, who's one of you, he's, he's praying for you, he is working hard on your behalf. And this seems to indicate that Epaphras had a role in overseeing and, and shepherding the congregations in all three cities, not just in Colossae, but probably in all three, since they were so close together. And he was likely the one who brought the gospel to all of them. So he was likely in charge and ministering in all three cities. And the Christians in these three cities would have likely have had more interaction with one another since they were basically neighbors. So they probably were you know, interacting frequently since they were just walking distance from one another. And as we'll see in verse 16, Paul wanted the Colossians to have his letter to them read in the church of the Laodiceans as well, which is why we see him here asking that they greet the brothers in Laodicea, likely on his and the rest of his team's behalf. He also asks that they greet Nympha and the church in her house. So first of all, the fact that Paul mentions this woman by name, we can assume indicates that he knew her personally that he knew her. And the most likely explanation as to how this came about is the same as that for the other people he knew from that area, like Epaphras, like Philemon. She most likely became a Christian through Paul's ministry when he was in the city of Ephesus years before. At the time Paul wrote this letter, she, from what he says, she was hosting a church in her house which Paul must have learned of from Epaphras. Remember, Paul has not been to Colossae. They have not met him face to face. When he ministered in the province of Asia and brought the gospel there, he was, his base of operations was in Ephesus for three years. But he had never personally been to Colossae, so many of them had not met him. Those who did most likely had met him in Ephesus, and so we see him giving greetings to those he knows, like Nympha. And so she has a church in her house. And she was most likely, because she was hosting a church in her house, she was most likely a wealthy widow. And she was using the resources God had given her to be of service to Christ's church in her area. And in that day, a wealthy person's large home could probably accommodate 30 to 50 people, if not more. There's no certainty there. But at least 30 to 50 people, that's pretty decent size. For a church in a small town and for other churches elsewhere. So Nympha had generously opened her home to the saints, not just for some of them to come over for dinner once in a while, but for a large group of them to assemble there for corporate worship on a weekly basis. Now that's hospitality. Every week to assemble as a church body in your house. Now, the fact that Paul asks the Colossians to greet Nympha and the church in her house after he says, give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea, can mean one of two things. 
either Nympha lived in Laodicea and was one of the house churches there that collectively made up the church at Laodicea because he said the brothers in Laodicea and Nympha in the church in her house, meaning if, if she was in Laodicea, she's one of two or more house churches. That's one option. Or the other explanation is that she lived in the neighboring city, Hierapolis, and was host to the church in that city, since already made mention of, Paul already made mention of the brothers in Laodicea. So we don't know for sure, but either way, Paul clearly had her and the church in her house singled out in this greeting because he knew her, and because he knew that she was hosting a regular assembly of Christians in her home, and he was acknowledging that, sending his greetings to her personally. And this brings us to the first feature that is vitally important to the health of a local church that we can derive from this observation here. First feature that is vitally important to the health of a local church is close-knit community. Close-knit community. You know, one local assembly met in Nympha's house, while the local assembly at Colossae met in Philemon's house. The early church, for at least the first two centuries, if not more, predominantly met in people's homes, in their houses. Local churches, in other words, were house churches. This was something that the saints did at a, certainly out of necessity due to their limited resources and the persecution they faced at that period of time in those regions. And there's... There's no command from the Lord. That's not to say there's a command from the Lord that, that church gatherings must be held in people's houses. That's just what the church did early on out of necessity. After all, if we think about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, Ephesus, do you remember where he met in Ephesus? He was in Ephesus. He went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews there. But basically, he ended up taking disciples with him and meeting in a place called the hall, well, a hall, a meeting hall of Tyrannus. So it was, it was a public lecture hall that he utilized and met with the believers for two years in the middle of the day there, kind of like we utilize this public facility for our Sunday gatherings. So again, the, the, the concept of a house church or that model isn't something mandated in Scripture, but something we see a lot, and it was something that the early church did for the first two centuries predominantly, assembling in homes. And no doubt, it, it's when we gather in one another's homes, I would say that our fellowship with one another can be experienced and lived out to the greatest extent. That's one of the reasons why, aside from utilizing this public facility, this community center that we're utilizing for our corporate worship services, we as a local church, we actually intentionally arrange to have our gatherings in the, in the homes of some of our brothers and sisters. You know, we could rent facilities for all our other gatherings. That might get a little expensive, so maybe that's not the best stewardship. But the thing is, we don't do it out of necessity, but by choice, we want to be meeting in people's homes. We think that's important because the home is the most personal of spaces. Wouldn't you agree? Is the home the most personal of spaces? Is there something different about meeting here? And maybe at the time that we did rent a room in Jesse, banquet room in Jesse Turner Center, or if we remember the hotel, I keep forgetting, was it Holiday Inn or Comfort Inn? Comfort Inn. I always get those mixed up. It was, it was all right. It wasn't that comfortable. Um, there's a difference, though. There's a difference in a third space in someone's home, meaning in someone's home. The home is the most personal spaces, and whether brother and, brothers and sisters are meeting in your home or you are meeting in theirs... I'd say it's the environment in which you encounter the most tangible expressions of fellowship. Fellowship in its, its most tangible form is experienced when we gather in each other's homes. Close-knit community, I would say for us, is, is far more important for us and, and any local church. Close-knit community is far more important than possessing a building. So I think we actually have something special here. We rent a facility on Sundays, and we kind of force ourselves into people's homes for our other gatherings, and I think that that's actually 
something better than if we had a building of our own where we would kind of fall into that pattern of just, we'll go to the building and have classes and have small groups there. We are meeting in people's homes. And I think that actually makes us closer as a local church community. So I'd say for the sake of the health of this local church fellowship, we must continue to excel in practicing hospitality and lovingly serving one another in close-knit community. So again, nothing wrong with eventually maybe having our own building, if that's something the Lord presents us with. But something that we are doing now that I would say we need to continue to excel in is the priority of meeting together in one another's homes, opening up our homes to one another, and having close-knit community that we do have. Now in verse 16... We'll see that Paul, having asked the Colossians to give his greetings to the churches up the road from them, he also gave them instructions concerning this letter. In verse 16, here's what he wrote. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now Paul first says, And when this letter has been read among you, which indicates what? That he expected this letter to be read to them out loud and in full when they were all assembled together as a local church body. This was a standard practice in that day since, again, not passing his letter around when it says read it among you. It's like, oh, here's a letter from Paul. Did you read this yet? Here you go. It was, no, when they're all assembled together, that would be the picture. They all assembled together, and then probably Tychicus, who brought the letter, would do the official reading of the letter to the church body. And this was something, again, standard practice in that day, since copies of text could not be easily and quickly produced. And since not, every, not everyone was literate, but we also don't want to go the other extreme and assume that everybody was illiterate. But again, the public reading before the church body would have been the way that this letter would have been presented to them. The public reading of Paul's letter to the Colossians essentially would serve as a scripture reading and word of exhortation for their worship service. See, we open up the scriptures, we read it every Sunday, and give a word of exhortation. And it's likely, again, that Tychicus is the one who first read the letter to them, since he's the one whom Paul had sent to deliver it to them, and to update them on the Lord's work through Paul and his team in Rome. Paul instructed the Colossians to have this letter read in the church of the Laodiceans after it had been read among them. And he may have, been, may have implied that they were to produce a copy that could be delivered to the Laodicean church so that they could also retain the original one in their position. But Paul's desire for this letter to be read before the Laodicean church tells us this, that he believed its instruction would be particularly relevant and helpful to them as well. After all the false teaching that was stirring up problems in the area, which we had seen him address in chapter 2 early on in this letter, that was one of the reasons why it was urgent that he was writing them. The false teaching that was stirring up problems in and around Colossae would certainly would not have been limited to that small town but would have also had an influence in the nearby cities as well. So Paul sees there's relevance here. I want you to have this letter read also in the church of the Laodiceans. It's possible that Paul did not include the Christians in Hierapolis. You notice that he didn't say anything about that city, right? The brothers in that city. It's possible he didn't include them here because there was, maybe there wasn't an established house church In their city at that time, they may have regularly traveled to Laodicea to assemble for corporate worship in one of the house churches there. Because again, it would be strange to exclude one of the three cities close by that would have been affected by this false teaching. But Paul then instructs the Colossians to also read the letter after their letter is read to the church of the Laodiceans. He instructs them to also read the letter from Laodicea. This letter is somewhat of a mystery. When considering early manuscript evidence and historical evidence, in addition to what we have in Scripture, some different explanations have been put forward with regard to the identification of this letter. And we'll we'll essentially look at two uh, likely ones. There are other explanations as well, but we don't have time to go into all that detail. But again, based on 
historical evidence, manuscript evidence, and what we have in Scripture, the information there, there are at least two plausible explanations, more plausible explanations than others, as to what this letter was, the letter from Laodicea. The most straightforward one is that it was a letter from Paul to the church in Laodicea, and that Tychicus would have carried this letter along with Paul's letter to the church in Colossae and delivered it. And if this was the case, then this letter, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, if this was the case, that he wrote a separate letter to them, and it was delivered by Tychicus as well, if this is the case, then this letter has not been preserved and is lost to us. Which means that even though it may have been edifying and useful to the saints in that region at that time, God did not intend for it to be in the canon of divine scripture, which is his written word that he has preserved for us to this day. So if Paul did indeed write a separate letter directly to the church in Laodicea, it is a letter that since has been lost has not been preserved by God's sovereign will, his providence, meaning it probably wasn't one that was given under divine inspiration and one that at least God did not intend to keep preserved for us to have accessible to us today in his word. An alternative explanation then. So there's one. But here's an alternative that's worth considering. The alternative explanation is that the letter from Laodicea that Paul mentions was actually a copy of what we have in our Bibles as Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which many believe was a circular letter. That is, it was a letter Paul intended to be circulated among the churches throughout the province of Asia. So numerous churches in numerous cities in the province of Asia, and that, that Paul had originally written what we call Ephesians as a more general letter to all the churches to be passed around to these churches. And this explanation, this idea, this theory is proposed based on the fact that the phrase in Ephesus, in the greeting at the beginning of this letter from Paul, Ephesians, what we call Ephesians, the phrase in Ephesus in the greeting uh, is not included in the earliest and most important New Testament manuscripts. So there, there are some ancient copies of this letter, and they don't include the words in Ephesus. And they're very early and very reliable manuscripts, and they don't have that phrase in Ephesus. So again, that signals to people that maybe originally this was intended just to be to the saints, and it was circulated among the churches in Asia, and some copies later had in Ephesus labeled in there because it was the copy that they kept for their church. So because of that missing phrase in some manuscripts, uh, in addition to that, the fact that the letter's instruction, if you go and read Ephesians, you'll find that the letter's instruction is more general. It also lacks personal references. And it seems to indicate that a number of the recipients had never met Paul. When you're reading, the way he's writing to them in our book, Ephesians, the way he's writing to the recipient, it seems that they've never met him. That's the way he kind of talks to them or writes to them, which we would know is certainly not true of the believers in Ephesus when we read Acts. How long was Paul in that city? Three years? And the date of, of these letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, um, he, he's in Rome at this time. It was only maybe two and a half years later, maybe a few years since he had been in Ephesus. So it wasn't like so much time has passed. It's like, do you even know me anymore? I mean, he knew them, knew them well. So again, all these things put together, um, and again, because the recipients, it seems that Paul had written to them as people who did not know him, uh, even though he had ministered in Ephesus for three whole years. Um, all these things put together have made some believe that, hey, maybe Ephesians was originally a circular letter to, to all the churches in the province of Asia. If this is the case, and again, I'm saying if because there's no, there's no absolute certainty here, but it's worth considering. If this is the case, that the church from Laodicea is really a, a copy of the, a circular letter that we now have as Ephesians, then it would have meant that Tychicus first delivered his 
or Paul's circular letter to the church in Ephesus when he's come from I have a map. Actually, we can put that up now. Should be here. Of course, uh, remember the, in Revelation, you have the letters to the churches of Asia. Well, this is the province of Asia. So if Tychicus was traveling from Rome with these letters, well, the first stop would be Ephesus. This was a major port city. So he would have hit Ephesus first with this circular letter. And we can keep it up here just for a few minutes. So Tychicus would have first delivered this letter to the church in Ephesus, which was the first city he would have reached in the province of Asia when traveling from Rome. He's coming from the west. And then when traveling east from Ephesus towards Colossae, based on this idea, this theory is he brought a copy of this circular letter then and delivered it to the church in Laodicea. And again, if you look at the churches in Asia, here's Ephesus, here, principal Roman road, that's what all these lines are, right? These are major travel routes. He would have, again, here's a city up here, Smyrna, likely a church up there. We know there is by the time Revelation is written, but if he's traveling, he has a a priority to get to Colossae because he's got Paul's letter to Philemon, the letter to the church at Colossae, so he's going to travel this way. Well, what does he hit first? Laodicea is actually on that road. So he would have likely had a copy produced, brought it here, and left it in Laodicea, and then brought Colossians and Philemon, those letters down here. So, He would have brought a copy, dropped it off in Laodicea when he came from Ephesus and then on his way to Colossae. Now, why would Tychicus have left the copy of the circular letter in Laodicea and not brought it to Colossae? Again, hey, if he's got a circular letter, wouldn't you also bring it to Colossae? Well, likely explanation is that because Colossae was so close by, right, walking distance, maybe just a few hours away, this is like a tri-city area, he hit the major the most prominent city of the three already to bring a copy there. Um, it was likely because Colossi was so close by and because they would have had access to the copy he brought to Laodicea soon enough, as we saw Paul's instructions indicated, that's probably why he didn't bother bringing a copy to Colossi. Besides, Tychicus, what? What else did he have? Well, he had a personal letter from Paul to the church at Colossae in addition to his personal letter to Philemon, who hosted their church in his house. So the priority would have been what? For them to read those letters first, the personal letters, and then they could go to their brothers up the road and obtain a copy of this circular one. By the way, this theory, this this explanation of the letter from Laodicea being a copy of Ephesians um, this theory was, uh, would actually explain why Paul tells the Colossians to give his greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, which we read right here, right? What does he say? Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea. If he had written them a personal letter, he would have greeted them. He wouldn't have needed the Colossians to go and greet them for him. But if they received a general circular letter for all the churches in Asia, which didn't include personal greetings, then it would make sense that he's asking in a personal letter to the Colossians, can you go and give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea? So anyway, that was fun, right? Just posing these, these options here because it's mysterious when we see the letter from Laodicea. What was it? Either it was a letter from Paul to Laodicea and it's since been lost, which means it was likely was not uh, an inspired letter that God intended to keep preserved in his word, or it's very possible that it was a copy of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and therefore we actually still have that very letter. And it's very similar to Colossians, a lot of parallels, and yet different enough for them, the Colossians, to have benefited from that content as well. Now, before we move on to verse 17, let's consider from verse 16 a second feature that is vitally important to the health of the local church, and that is biblical instruction. Biblical instruction. These are very general, we could say obvious, but important for us to keep in mind for the health of the local church, biblical instruction. The Apostle Paul had given the Colossians his letter, which was what? It was Scripture. It was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Scripture was to be read during their regular assembly, and they were to receive it as the word of the Lord and submit to its teaching. It was was apostolic instruction. 
given by way of inspiration. It was the word of the Lord. It was scripture. It was to be read among them. They were to receive it as the word of the Lord. They were to submit to its teaching. And the Laodiceans were to do this as well. And in the face of the influential false teaching in their area, and in light of the goal that they would live their lives in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul knew that their greatest need was sound biblical instruction. That's what they needed most. And this instruction was to be front and center in the church's order of service when it gathered together. And so it must be for us. The early church devoted itself, Scripture says, to the teaching of the apostles, and so must we. The leaders of the church, Scripture says, were charged to devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Our leaders must do the same. That must be a priority, something that's prominent during our times that we assemble together. And it is, is it not? The reading of Scripture and exhortation and teaching from the Scriptures. Why is this important? Well, because all Scripture is, as Scripture says, God-breathed. And what? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are conformed to the likeness of Christ by the renewal of our minds through biblical instruction. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to transform us, not apart from it. So we're not trying to seek some kind of experience by which we will be, the Spirit will give us wisdom and, and, and somehow make us more like Christ experientially. The Spirit works through the Scriptures, works through the Word of God and the the instruction from the Word of God to renew our minds by the truth that we might, by that means, be transformed and conformed to the likeness of Christ. So for the sake of the health of this local fellowship, then, biblical instruction must remain at the center of Of all that we do, it is the means God uses to sanctify us. And I would say we really mean what we say when we call ourselves Summit Bible Church. It is a priority. It's a priority laid out in Scripture for us, and we see here its utter importance for our continuing as a healthy, faithful local church. Now, in verse 17, we see Paul's instructions to the Colossians regarding a particular individual named Archippus. Again, for anybody expecting children, maybe you have a son. Possible unique name selections since that's, I guess, uh, pretty common in California. Archippus, verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Paul also mentioned Archippus at the beginning of the other letter he sent to Colossae, his letter to Philemon. Here's what he wrote. And again, these were sent at the same time, same time. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So that was parenthetical. He's writing to Philemon in the church in your house, but he also makes mention of Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Based on that text, it appears that Archippus, along with Aphia, in, in that greeting, it appears that Archippus and Aphia were members of Philemon's household, the way he gave that greeting, that they were also members of Philemon's household. Most likely, Aphia was Philemon's wife, and Archippus was his son. It's most likely who they were. And Paul specifically refers to Archippus in that greeting as what? Our fellow soldier. The only other time Paul uses this specific term of someone and the only other place it appears in the New Testament, specifically fellow soldier, 
is in Philippians 2.25, where Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you, his, his letter to the church at Philippi, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Now we're going to keep reading through verse 30 because it'll help us see why Paul referred to him as a fellow soldier. For he has been longing for you, longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Think about that. He's distressed because you heard that he was ill, not because he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Fellow soldier. Elsewhere, Paul uses the term soldier of his right-hand man. So again, not specifically fellow soldier, but it's the same word, soldier, And he uses it of his right-hand man, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, we read this. He wrote to Timothy, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And maybe a little explanation as, again, what this term implies. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. All right, so from these passages that we looked at, we see that a fellow soldier, according to Paul, was someone who was seriously engaged in the work of gospel ministry. A fellow soldier was someone who was not distracted by the temporary concerns and fleeting pleasures of this life, but instead was trying to please Christ by being of useful service to him. A fellow soldier was someone who persevered through suffering for the sake of faithfully serving Christ. They didn't crack under pressure. They endured hardship. They endured suffering for the sake of serving Christ. They stayed the course. And according to Paul, Archippus was such a man. Archippus was this kind of man. He most likely was shepherding the saints in the Tri-City area along with Epaphras. It's likely what, he, what his role was, being referred to as a fellow soldier. And during this period of time that, well, where was Epaphras? He's in Rome. He's not there. So during this period of time that Epaphras was in Rome with Paul, Archippus then would have had a lot more work on his plate with regard to his ministry responsibilities, and thus a much heavier load to carry. And this is probably why Paul told the Colossians to relay the following message to him. See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. An even more literal translation would be as follows. Tell him, be directing your attention to the service which you received in the Lord in order that you may be fulfilling it. So there's this ongoing sense, this active sense. Be directing your attention to the work that you may be fulfilling it. Now, since it seems that Paul's letter to Philemon, or from that letter to Philemon, that Archippus was present in Colossae, why did he tell the Colossians to relay a message to him? It's like, um, I'm right here, guys. But Paul says in this letter to the whole church, tell Archippus this message. If Archippus is in Colossae, why would he do that? If he was there, why not just address Archippus directly in this letter? Hey, Archippus, I know you're there. Fulfill your ministry. See that you fulfill your ministry. Well, I would say this. I believe Paul worded it the way he did so that the church would join him in encouraging Archippus with this charge. What is he doing? He's bringing them all into it and having them all relay this message to him. 
And from what we can tell, he was faithfully carrying on in the work of ministry while his fellow pastor, Epaphras, was in Rome with Paul. You know, there's no indication that he was slacking in his work. Some people think maybe he was and maybe he needed that kind of push. But I don't think there's any indication. He's referred to as a fellow soldier. Seems that he is being faithful in the work. However, ministry is tough. People are difficult. Surprise, surprise, right? And Satan is crafty. And when you add on top of that the fact that Archippus' partner in ministry was over a thousand miles away and would be gone for some time, quite a while, you can imagine how difficult his work would have been. How encouraging, then, would it have been for him to not only have the Apostle Paul, Paul the Apostle of Christ, but also the entire Colossian church show their support for him in the work the Lord called him to. This support and encouragement would also come from the brothers and sisters in Laodicea, since this letter was going to be read among them as well, and they'd have that same exhortation. Tell Archippus this. So he was being exhorted to stay the course, to hold the line and to keep pressing on and fighting the good fight as a fellow soldier in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember when we talked about Demas? We looked at, you know, again, fast forward, what, what happened years later? He ends up forsaking Paul. He loved this present world. He ends up abandoning the ministry. So again, you see, there's a need for those, especially those who are called to help lead the church, to stay the course, and to have support and encouragement. Now let's consider a a third feature that's vitally important to the health of the local church, and that is faithful leadership. Faithful leadership. We said close-knit community was the first one. Biblical instruction was the second. Faithful leadership is the third. Vitally important to the health of a local church. You know, we don't know much about Epaphras and Archippus, but the one thing we do know for certain is that they were faithful men who were devoted to Christ and cared for his church. They endured hardship. They persevered in the work of ministry for the sake of the body of Christ. They diligently labored so that their local church would be healthy and growing in the Lord. The Christians at Colossae, remember, had not met Paul. They hadn't met the Apostle Paul. It may have been that they had not yet met any of the apostles. It's possible. Yet, there they were. There they were in a small town in Colossae as a faithful and fruitful church in the province of Asia. In their small little town, there they were. But they had never met Paul, maybe none of the other apostles. How would that happen? It wouldn't happen apart from the Lord's gracious work through Epaphras and Archippus, their faithful leaders. Faithful leaders are... Vitally important to the health of our, our local church, just as much as it was to theirs. And I would say, praise the Lord that he's given us such men. Summit Bible Church is eight and a half years old since it was first planted. Praise the Lord for faithful men being placed at the helm. Hey, do you want them to persevere in their work? You want them to stay the course? Here's what you can do to help them. Just simply. One, pray for them. That's it. I'm not going to expand on that. Pray for them. Two, encourage them in the work they've been entrusted with. And we're talking about encouragement here, not criticism. Everybody's a critic. Not helpful. But also what's not helpful is flattery. Your leaders don't need flattery. They don't need criticism. They just need encouragement in the work of gospel ministry. And by the way, some of the more encouraging things you can say is what, what the Lord is doing in your life. Uh, what you are learning in his word. Seeing, seeing fruit, real fruit. Seeing your progress in your sanctification. Those are the kind of things that are encouraging. Saying, this is not in vain. We're seeing God changing people. 
conforming them to the likeness of Christ. That's encouraging. You know, so just, you know, again, think about, that was a good sermon, Pastor. Good. Encouraged him. Yeah. That's all right. Hey, was the sermon effective? Is it teaching you? Are you you learning by it through the word? So again, be an encouragement to your leaders. Also, because faithful leadership is essential to the health and duration of our church for the glory of Christ, then we must continue to hold our current leaders and any potential new ones to the standards of qualification laid out for us in Scripture. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and we're isn't that what we're learning right now? Pastor Jeremy's preaching through that, those passages. We need to hold our current leaders and any potential new ones to those standards if we want our church to remain healthy and have faithful leadership. Finally, in verse 18, and we'll wrap it up here, we come to the end of, of Paul's letter. Here's what he wrote. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The first statement reminds us of the fact that, and again, if you weren't familiar with this, Paul would, would actually compose his letters by way of dictation. That is, he would, he would dictate them to an associate of his who would then write down what he said. That doesn't change anything about the process of inspiration. God the Spirit was superintending that process. The words that Paul dictated and also the writing of those words to record them down without error, so that what was written was indeed the word of God. But Paul would dictate his letters, and an associate of his would write them down. However, at the end of Paul's letters, here's what he would do. He would himself take up the pen and write a final note, personally. This was his way of authenticating that the letter, indeed, was composed by him, he explained this at the end of his second letter to the church of the Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, he wrote, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Sounds familiar. And then he says, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Don't be a critic. It's how I write. It's my writing. You know it's from me. Certainly, then, when we think about the Colossians, it would have been encouraging for them to see his personal touch This personal touch from the Apostle Paul, whom they'd never met, at the end of this letter, his letter to them. You know, they lived in a small town, and only a few of them had actually met him, and yet here was his personal letter to all of them. It was a letter in which he addressed them all as faithful brothers in Christ, a letter in which he gave them rich theological and practical instruction that was related to their their particular situation and circumstances. And it was a letter in which he affirmed their leaders. They were among God's elect, among the Gentiles, and Paul rejoiced over them and desired to see them remain rooted in Christ and pressing on towards maturity in him, as we see in this letter. And one final thing Paul asked of them was that they remember his chains which was a way of asking them to continue to pray for him and his situation in Rome where, again, he remained confined under house arrest. In addition to this, the fact that their beloved apostle was in chains for what? For the cause of the gospel served as an example for them to remain faithful. Paul is in chains. How about you? But yet he's there. He's being faithful. He's there for the cause of the gospel. It's an example to them, in addition to just being a a general prayer request. And lastly, Paul wrote, grace be with you. Something he writes similarly in all of his letters. You know, the the false teachers, again, if we remember Colossae, they they pointed to man-made religious rituals, regulations, and charismatic experiences as the means to grow spiritually, to be closer to God, and that by their own efforts as well. But Paul, he pointed the Colossians to Christ, and he reminded them of the absolute necessity of God's grace. It was by God's grace that they had been saved through faith in Christ, 
And it was by God's grace that they were to press on towards full maturity in Christ. If they indeed belonged to the Lord, then they had in the Lord, in Christ, everything they needed for life and godliness. And his grace was sufficient for them. So it is for you. Our Lord's grace is sufficient for us. So may we depend upon him in every circumstance as we likewise strive to walk in a manner worthy of him. And may we continue to strive together as one local fellowship, united in close-knit community, partnership. May we be striving to continue to, together in the work of gospel ministry in close-knit community, biblically grounded instruction and as a faithfully led local church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your abundant grace that you've poured out on us in saving us, but also in growing us in Christ in whom we have life and the hope of eternal glory. Pray that you would help us as a local church body to endure, to persevere in the work of gospel ministry, which you've called us to, the Great Commission in making disciples, not just evangelizing the lost, but also growing, helping those who, are, who come to faith in Christ to, to grow in him towards full maturity. May we be a faithful church that endures and is a beacon of the truth of your word and the light of the gospel in the region in which we live. Help us to maintain a close-knit community as one body together. Help us to be devoted to your word and biblical instruction, and help us, Lord, to have and maintain faithful leadership in this local church. And also for all of us personally, Lord, may we take to mind all the things that we've learned in this letter, this letter that is so rich with instruction that points us to your glorious Son, for whom all things have been created, in whom all things hold together, and in whom we have hope of everlasting life with you in your future glorious kingdom. Help us to press on towards full maturity in Christ by your grace in which we stand. Help us continue in that grace and live lives worthy of you for your glory. Amen.